You're listening to the Eyes on Washington podcast, Holland and Knight's overarching public policy and regulation podcast series. Our public policy and regulation group has an ideal combination of lawyers and lobbyists with a comprehensive understanding of the federal policy and regulatory process. This series will shine a light on the shifting dynamics of governmental entities in the ensuing changes in economic or political policies, laws, and regulations that can have a critical impact on the health and future of your business. Hey listeners, welcome to Tax and Tequila. My name is Nicole Elliott and I'm joined by my colleague Josh Odens, both partners at the law firm of Holland Knight and self-proclaimed tax nerds and lover of all things tax. Our goal is to bring you uh, interesting tax news and entertain you with some very smart and interesting tidbits. Today we're going to talk to you about CIC services versus internal revenue services. Thanks, Nicole. So yes, today we are going to talk about a case before the U.S. Supreme Court, CIC services versus the IRS, which is fully brief and awaiting decision in any minute from the Supreme Court. So Nicole and I both have submitted amicus briefs, and we are waiting at the edge of our seats for that opinion. We're going to talk for the next 20 minutes or so about what this case is about and what it all means. So just a disclaimer, the views expressed are our own, ours alone, and as former government employees of the Treasury and the IRS, we have the utmost respect for our former colleagues, and once again, these are not their opinions, these are our opinions. So Nicole, what are the taxpayer and the IRS fighting about? Well, let me, let me take a step back first. Again, we're tr- going to try to make this as succinct as possible, but it requires us to take one little step back. So in 2004, Congress gave the IRS the authority to identify reportable transactions. And those were transactions that included what are called transaction of interest. Basically transactions where the IRS suspects there's some funny business going on and maybe they were designed for tax avoidance and tax evasion, but the IRS doesn't think and it doesn't have enough information about this particular transaction. So the Congress basically said, IRS, we are giving you authority to designate reportable transactions, which includes transactions of interest under regulation. IRS did a little clever thing, which is that it did issue a regulation. And we'll talk a little bit about what a regulation is but it's basically a a formal piece of guidance that the IRS issues that has the opportunity for public comment and it's published in the Federal Register. But even though Congress said, IRS, you can do this, you have to identify these transactions in regulation. The IRS issued a regulation, in fact, but then gave itself additional authority to do that in a notice. And a regulation and a notice are very different in part, as I mentioned, because the regulation goes through very formal procedures, which includes public comment. But the notice can be done really pretty much at the spur of the moment. There's no formal requirement to solicit public feedback. And so in 2016, IRS issued one of these notices. It was 2016-66. And basically said, it said, these this, this thing called microcraftive transactions are, we think they're transact, we're going to designate them transactions of interest. 
And what the current Supreme Court decision is brought by CIC services, they were they were implicated in this notice because once the notice was issued, they had to file additional information with the IRS. So CIC services is the plaintiff in this action. And what they're complaining about fundamentally is this notice and the rules that come along with the designation, which is this additional filing of information with the IRS that is pretty significant, pretty burdensome, and carries with it some significant penalties if they fail to file this additional information. I think it's important our listeners uh, understand what a micro captive insurance product is or what is micro captive insurance. And it's when a company pays insurance to another entity. The word captive comes from the idea that the payor is paying to uh, a subsidiary or another related party, but it's effectively a form of self-insurance and that the insurance company is owned by the insured. The way the tax code functions, there are tax savings that are available in this type of transaction, but the IRS is concerned about certain flavors of this transaction, whether, in fact, this transaction really is insurance. That's exactly right, Josh. And so what the IRS was doing is, again, saying transaction of interest and once so designated, not only taxpayers, but material advisors. And material advisors are the folks that help the taxpayers, like the lawyers or the accountants, or in this case, CIC services, to require this additional form. Now, the usual rule, taking aside CIC, so this case in particular, there's been a rule that's existed since 1867, and it's called the Anti-Injunction Act. And the general rule under this thing called the, this law called the Anti-Injunction Act is pay first, sue later. The reason behind the Anti-Injunction Act is an important one. We can't have taxpayers avoiding their taxes and suing the government left and right. But the issue here is that whether this law, which is really, it's the, the language is for the purpose of restraining the assessment or collection of any tax, preclude CIC services from challenging the notice. And that is what the Supreme Court will have to decide. And once again, Nicole, the, you know, the AIA or the Anti-Injunction Act is, is narrow and it is once again designed to prevent taxpayers from suing the government to prevent the collection or assessment of taxes. But there's also another area of law called the Administrative Procedures Act which comes into force almost 100 years later. Uh, So AIA is from uh, Civil War era, and actually there was even a version of it pre-1867. The current version and iterations are 1867 and onward, but during the Civil War, there was a concern that uh, individuals could stop the Union from collecting taxes to to fight the war. Close to 100 years later, we have the Administrative Procedures Act, which is a law that applies to all federal agencies. And so whenever Congress passes a law, the federal agency charged with that law or agencies charged with that law have to provide interpretations. And under the APA, that means that there's notice and comment. There's an opportunity for the public to receive notice of what the intended rule would be. And it gives the public and any, any interested stakeholder an opportunity to provide comments. And those comments can be written or can be oral or a combination of the two. And uh, there are certainly rules where, you know, besides regulations, where the IRS does follow a notice and comment, but there are less formal rules. And sometimes the IRS does not provide that notice and comment. 
So in the question of a transaction of interest, which is at issue in CIC services, the IRS has regulatory authority to treat certain transactions as of interest, and it issued a notice doing so. It did not go through the notice and comment, giving taxpayers the ability to comment. And so really the issue is whether CIC services can sue now uh, and claiming that the notice is invalid because the IRS failed to go through notice and comment, or whether it has to wait for the IRS to find out that the that the taxpayer didn't file the required notices, which could trigger penalties and interest. And then at that point, could the taxpayer uh, sue to claim that uh, the notice is invalidly promulgated? So that's really the crux of the matter. Do you have to wait years and wait for the IRS to knock? Or can you take take the bull by its horn and challenge the validity of a regulation or other guidance now? And I think CIC services made a good point. In addition to the really significant civil penalties, there's criminal implications here. So CIC services is really asking, do I really have to wait until the IRS tracks me down and potentially asserts criminal or other civil penalties before I can challenge this? And by the way, what about my reputational risk? I am a known entity in this space. How am I supposed to basically ignore this? I have to comply with this. There's no way I can't not comply with this. And so I'm really in this unattainable situation of wanting to challenge this notice, but not not willing to basically willfully violate the notice by failure to file this additional information. Nicole, absolutely agree. And look, these rules are very burdensome for businesses to have to comply with. So they'd have to pull together within 30 days of receiving a request, all the information regarding any entity that they advised that entered into the transaction. And they're effectively disclosing them. That probably would hurt business, um, <laughs> to put it mildly, especially if it's a plain vanilla transaction. So, I mean, this is, you know, this is a really huge issue for CIC services and for any taxpayer that has to comply with disclosing information to the service under these rules. I think, you know, because of this really fundamental issue about the interplay between the Anti-Injunction Act and the Administrative Procedure Act or the APA, we saw a great deal of interest in our tax in the tax community in general over this case. There were quite a few briefs filed mostly supporting CIC services because of the result that would happen if, in fact, the AIA did block their challenge. And I should say that the district court and the Sixth Circuit agreed that the AIA blocked. Um, At the Sixth Circuit, um, there was dissent, but, you know, CIC services is is not the prevailing party here before the the Supreme Court. It's also important to note you know, why did the Supreme Court take this case? I mean, normally the Supreme Court avoids tax cases. Well, while this is a tax case and it's certainly very important to the tax community, it's really the intersection of the APA with another law uh, because Congress did not figure out how the APA should work with the AIA. And there's silence in this space. There's a split of authorities. We have a, a case authored by a current Supreme Court justice in Florida Bankers. And then uh, we have a split opinion in the Fifth Circuit with Chamber of Commerce involving the anti-inversion regulations. And in, in Chamber of Commerce, the taxpayer was allowed to proceed with an APA challenge 
pre-enforcement or assessment or collection. And the flip side uh, holding occurred in Florida bankers. So it's really right for the Supreme Court to weigh in. And it is a fairly important tax case for the community. Nicole, looking into your crystal ball, we both listened to the oral arguments. What did you think of the oral arguments? What do you you think is going to happen? So the oral arguments were telephonic, which was very interesting. And, you know, my overall impression is that it didn't wasn't a very good day for the government. I think the justices were pretty skeptical of the government's position and also really skeptical of the, the result if they were to hold that the AIA would be a bar to CIC services. If I had the crystal ball, I think CIC services comes out the winner on this one. So I see it both ways. I can see how CIC services should win, but I think that the justices are going to be concerned about what this could do to the IRS. And are they going to look for some middle ground? Are they going to try to craft a new rule to figure out how the APA and the AIA should interact? Because look, everyone in this country deals with the IRS every year on April 15th, or certainly by October 15th. And so the justices are not blind to that. There's a long history of the AIA. And frankly, it wasn't until relatively recently in Mayo that the Supreme Court announced that the APA applied to the IRS and to Treasury. There was a lot of navel gazing and views that tax was exceptional and that the APA did not apply. So I think it's, it's, a, it's hard. I, I must say I'm surprised that oral argument occurred in December and we don't have an opinion This is not one of the cases I would have expected to drag out into June, but we're getting perilously close to to it to June. And so, Josh, uh, now that we've we've read our our crystal balls for everyone, what does this all mean? So say CIC services is successful, and obviously there's a huge question of do the justices blow up the AA, which we don't think they will, but we we don't really know where they're going to draw the lines of, you know, what what may move forward or, or the parameters of their exception potentially to the AIA. But what what does this mean for for our listeners, for our clients, taxpayers in general? So let's assume that the Supreme Court holds that a taxpayer can challenge the validity of guidance or the constitutionality of a statute uh, before it has to file a return. So that would really open the opportunities for taxpayers to take on fighting regulations. So what do I mean by fighting regs? Well, those are regulations where the IRS tries to shut down a transaction or issues guidance that taxpayers view as anti-taxpayer and possibly not supported by the statute. So an example is the guidance that was issued to address the guilty gap period, the gap period between December 31st, 2017, and the first fiscal year beginning in 2018, uh, there was a gap between guilty and the old system, and some taxpayers undertook transactions during that period. The IRS did not like those transactions and backfilled that period with, with a rule. And I think there's a fairly interesting debate about whether those regulations are valid. And taxpayers would like to be able to challenge those regulations immediately so they know if they either have to pay the tax, reserve for it, et cetera, Um, but they don't want to have to wait 10 years after they go through the audit process 
uh, go to appeals, appeals passes on it, end up in the tax court, and then litigate it all the way. They'd like to be able to run to court sooner rather than later. Um, so it would give taxpayers the opportunity to challenge that you know, small group of regulations that I think taxpayers view as fighting regulations. So it could be very powerful and give taxpayers a new tool that otherwise they'd have to wait until the audit plays out, or they could pay the tax and sue for a refund. That could take them to the front of the line. But you know, there's there's a timing element with that as well. And we also talked, I think, a little bit about what might be a congressional response or, you know, how IRS might rethink their guidance process, knowing now that they're vulnerable to more litigation if they do not follow the APA. Yeah, I would absolutely expect the IRS to freak out. And that's a technical term if they lose. And the IRS will, you know, they're already feeling the pressure of taking on a lot more burdens with, you know, the, with the Affordable Care Act, with TCJA, with all these rounds of COVID relief that are really important. A lot, is, a lot more is running through the Internal Revenue Code and through the IRS. And the IRS headcount was down 20% as of last year for over the last decade. So they need more resources and money. And if they now have to play whack-a-mole with every potential, every regulation, that will tie up resources. And so I expect the IRS will respond that they need some certainty and that there need to be some guardrails around the APA uh, that limit the ability of taxpayers to challenge regulations. I'll just note that there are certain limitations on timeframes in other areas, like in nuclear licensing, there are very strict guidelines that provide, a tax, uh, provide an interested party must sue within 60 days to challenge the validity of guidance. Um, so, you know, Congress knows how to provide guardrails and it could do so. I once again expect the IRS would complain loudly. And from our perspective, you know, I think there is the danger that we want some guardrails, but we also don't want to totally tie the hands of the IRS. They issue a lot of guidance that isn't technically a regulation. They issue FAQs, they issue instructions to their forms and things that help us as tax practitioners try to understand the laws that Congress wrote. So, you know, I think there is a balance to be had there that, you know, there is a there is a desire to have certainty in some areas, but certainly in other areas where we think that the, the APA should apply and there should be a, a rather formal procedure. Yep, I agree. Absolutely agree. I'd like to finish our tax and tequila conversation with some interesting facts about tequila, and maybe in the future we'll come up with tasting recommendations as well. But uh, first, very much like wines, uh, like champagne or wine from Bordeaux, tequila has an appellation of origin. It can only be produced in one of five regions in Mexico, but I'll just let you know, far and away, the largest producer is Jalisco. So that's important to know. And then, uh, Tequila comes from agave plants, and it's worth noting that the agave plant is not a cactus. So it is spiky, but it comes from a succulent plant that is closely related to the lily plant. I hope we have piqued your interest in tax and especially CIC services. Stay tuned for our next episode of Tax and Tequila where we will take seemingly mundane subjects of tax and try to do our best to entertain and educate you. Until then, stay tuned, stay tax compliant. Thank you for listening to the Eyes on Washington podcast. 
brought to you by Holland and Knight's Public Policy and Regulation Group. For more information on our Public Policy and Regulation Group, please visit hklaw.com slash PPR.